the most scary part of what happened to Joyce Etchequan when I watched that Facebook live stream. There was a moment at the end where the person who was interacting with Joyce looked at the camera. There was a complete absence of fear. They looked at the camera and said, well, I, yeah, I know I'm being watched, but nothing's going to happen. I think that that's the really scary part of the lived experience of being racialized is as you're going through it, you know, in the back of your head, even if someone knows about this, I don't know if anything's going to be done. That's Dr. Elika Lafontaine, the first Indigenous president of the Canadian Medical Association and a proud member of the Métis Nation of Alberta. He's our guest on this episode of Minobamadzwan, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm your host, Sherry Huff, a former reporter and producer at CBC Radio and a proud member of El Napawi Lakawit, the home of the Lenape. Today, I work for Thunderbird, managing communications like hosting this podcast. Minobamadzuan means living the good life in the language of the Anishinaabe. We chose that name as a name for our podcast because it captures what we all hope for. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our guest today is Dr. Elika Lafontaine. As well as being president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Lafontaine is an anesthesiologist practicing in Grand Prairie, Alberta. He has an Anishinaabe, Cree, Métis, and Pacific Islander ancestry, and was born and raised in Treaty 4 territory in southern Saskatchewan. He has won many awards over his career and previously served as president of the Indigenous Physicians Association. Dr. Elika Lafontaine, welcome to the Minobamadzuin podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on becoming the first Indigenous president of the CMA. Symbolically, that has to have a big impact. I'm also wondering what it means in terms of being able to bring ground-level changes that we need to see in the fight against systemic racism inside the healthcare system. And what are your priorities on that front? You know, it was quite a surprise when I found out that I'd been successfully elected out here in Alberta. You know, it was uh, an election where there was a lot of candidates that obviously would have done a really great job. And when I look back at the reasons why I participated in you know, running for the election in the first place, a lot of it was related to the magnification of all the negative parts of the healthcare system that's happened since the beginning of the pandemic. And when I look at the symbolic nature of, you know, moving into this position and the opportunities that I have to uniquely, you know, add my voice for change. One of the things I always go back to is, you know, which voices do we hear when we talk about the problems that are out there and which voices do we amplify? And I, I think that's one of the really important parts of having, you know, different faces and more inclusive voices around tables is that you get to hear things in ways that you didn't before. And when you talk about issues, particularly issues that have really come to the front of the consciousness of, of Canadians, things like racism, discrimination, exclusion, you know, lack of lack of access to health care, you know, lack of equity when we're looking at health outcomes, we aren't hearing the right voices around the table. This is why the problems persist. 
And I'm really looking forward to being part of that solution. But one thing that I realized through my work in this area is that my success is really going to hinge on everyone else who's working in this area as well, making sure that I amplify those voices, make sure that I help to bring those voices to a table and to create space for them as we move forward and try and fix these problems. How have you been received in that in that effort? Uh, I know that that I have seen coverage of your passion to raise this issue. Has there been a willingness out there to to amplify that voice, your voice and others? It's interesting the place that we're at right now. I mean, you you remember 10, 15 years ago, being Indigenous wasn't necessarily, you know, a positive thing. You know, I, I remember when I first started talking about racism within the healthcare system, it wasn't something that we could even label or say out loud. You know, if you said the word racism, you'd turn off the majority of your your audience. And as a result, I mean, you could say what you want to say, but no one would be there to hear it. And so I, I think that there's been a lot of luck as far as timing that's come into me being in this position as well. I, I think if there had been an Indigenous person no matter how qualified, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it would still be very, very difficult to talk about these sorts of issues. And I, I think that that really goes back to the people who have been out there talking about this with me for the past several years. You know, there's many, many Indigenous voices across the country, both inside and outside of health, that have brought attention to this issue, this issue that have normalized the importance of this issue. Mm. And I, I think that I, I obviously will be able to to share my own unique perspective, but like I said before, um, I, I really stand on the shoulders of everybody who came before, and I, I think that's put me in a much better position than I'd be in otherwise. We had a, a story break uh, just in our own region here in southwestern Ontario this morning, uh, another example of racism in the healthcare system, a case being brought before the Human Rights Commission. We do continue to see these stories happen across across Turtle Island. Uh, I know that, that you've been very open about your own experiences as an Indigenous doctor and an Indigenous man. Why do we continue to see this problem? I mean, it's 2021. Marie Sinclair recently talked about this, and, and it was a really great summary of the reality of the situation that we're in. He said at a, a conference that... You could remove persons who racialize others out of systems, but because those systems are set up to normalize these behaviors, you can't fix those systems until you change those norms. We often talk about just culture, equitable culture, inclusive cultures within healthcare systems, and I think sometimes focusing on you know, the, this back and forth of what's fair this back and forth of what other people get relative sometimes misses the point of addressing actual racism. And that's what have we normalized? You know, when, when you look at the situation that recently happened that you're talking about, when you look at, you know, Joyce Etchequan and all the other experiences of racialization that have happened, you know, in the last couple of years and preceding that there's, there's this thread where, the event happened and people saw it and walked by. You know, it was normal not to react to it. It was normal not to speak up. And in in partnership with that, 
there's this normalization that you don't have to be afraid of what will happen to you if you do these things. The most scary part of what happened to Joyce Etchequan when I watched that Facebook live stream, you know, which which I don't think this issue actually would have been addressed with the the same sort of attention as it had if not for what she did in filming her experience. You know, the, there was a moment at the end where the person who was interacting with Joyce looked at the camera and there was a complete absence of fear. They knew that they were being recorded, but it was almost like it didn't matter to them. You know, they, they looked at the camera and said, well, I, yeah, I know I'm being watched, but nothing's going to happen. You know, and I, I think that that's the really scary part of the lived experience of being racialized is as you're going through it, you know, in the back of your head, even if someone knows about this, I don't know if anything's going to be done. And as we get more and more of these stories, I think one of the, the things that is happening as these stories are being shared is persons who've never been racialized, you know, either because um, they're not a person of color or they've just never come across these situations are understanding just how terrifying it actually is to be in the middle of going somewhere to receive, you know, access to care and those persons who are your gateway to better health, who are really distributing those resources and telling you whether or not you belong there and will be able to get access to things at the place that you've come. Um, you know, it, it's a terrifying experience. It really is. And, and, and I'm, and I'm curious to know whether you've seen changes, whether you've seen anything done during your career so far in terms of addressing this issue of systemic racism? I, I think we have a long way to go when it comes to addressing the systemic part of racism. I think we've come a long way when we've talked about individuals. You know, being able to stand in front of a, a group of physicians and use words like racism and discrimination and share personal and publicly known stories and not having the initial reaction be, you know, it couldn't have happened, or maybe the way that you're sharing it is making it sound worse than it actually is, having people just accept that lived experience, I think is a place that we can be proud that we've moved towards. But the systemic part, the norms of behavior, you know, that has not changed yet. If that had changed, we would see it in the way that people experience the healthcare system. We would see it in the way of how Indigenous peoples talk about their experiences of care. You know, in the work that I do, I receive a lot of stories directly from patients and families talking about, you know, their fear when they come for a healthcare experience. When I talk about situations that they're frustrated with, one of their initial reactions is worrying about retribution. You know, if I if I share this, is my physician or nurse or the administrators at the place that I'm reporting, are they going to do something to me as a result? You know, when those things change, that's when we can start to have some confidence that the behavior that we've normalized has started to shift. So I, I think we should we should be proud of where we're at when it comes to to one-to-one -to -one interactions, but we still have a very long way to go when it comes to the system. And I guess those kinds of changes don't happen overnight. You know, it is interesting when 
you talk about how long it takes for these changes to happen. Because when you look at other major shifts in healthcare, things like patient safety, quality improvement, you know, all these things that we read in the news, this language that's been normalized, it actually didn't take a very long time for these things to happen. You know, the, the quality improvement revolution is a really good template to look at as far as how quickly change can occur. You know, it wasn't until the late 90s when a group came out in the, the United States and made a challenge to the healthcare system to save, you know, I think it was 300,000 lives in the next nine months. And it was the Institute of Health Improvement. You know, they're, they're a big force right now, but they were just a small group of people back then. There had been a report that had been published looking at, you know, harm that happened to patients as a result of engaging with the healthcare system. So you came to a hospital and as a result of being treated, you experienced harm just because you were there. Right. And, you know, they, they did a really great job of socializing this message that iatrogenic harm, which is what it was called, isn't something that should be part of health systems. And there was a, a flurry of legislation and programming and resources that were redirected to this. And from the late 90s to, you know, the early 2000s, we saw health quality improvement acts passed in every province. You know, you had health quality councils set up. And I think sometimes we forget in the healthcare system how we haven't had a lot of the things that we take for granted for a very long time. You know, Medicare hasn't been around for for a very, very long time. It's only been a few decades. You know, quality improvements really only been around since the early 2000s. And when we look at those changes and just how fast they happened... I think we should actually hold ourselves to a bit higher of a standard when we talk about how quickly things can change. You know, systems and what they accept, there's a pattern to how how those changes happen. And I, I think sometimes when we when we look at how long change takes to occur, it's a byproduct of us sitting back and going, well, you know, the change needs to happen, but it's not as urgent as some of these other changes. It's often because we don't prioritize what we should be doing. Right. And, and in terms of addressing this, this issue on that his systemic level, improving health care for Indigenous people, is there, is there more that you think that, that provincial, territorial, and federal governments can be doing to, to, to pro- help us progress? There's a growing realization in provincial health systems that these type of events just don't get reported. You know, and it, it's not because they don't happen. It's because there's barriers to reporting. You know, people, like I said before, are afraid of reporting because of retribution. You know, they're afraid of sharing these experiences, you know, sometimes because they have good relationships with the providers. You know, one of the things that I've started to include in a lot of the presentations when I, I talk about racialization is that we sometimes think about, you know, racism and racists, quote unquote, as these two-dimensional characters that just go around and just create harm all the time. You know, in reality, people are much more complex, three-dimensional characters. You know, you may interact with someone one time and have a racialized experience. The next time you might not. You know, and especially in the midst of the pandemic over the past couple of years, 
we've seen what stress does to people, you know, and as people experience stress and frustration within these different systems, often the things that they've otherwise been able to, you know, suppress or cover up end up coming out, you know, and that that's, that's part of the experience of, of racialization. And so provinces really need to do a much better job at creating these environments where people don't have to be afraid. You know, one, one of the things that I've worked on for the past couple of years and that I'll definitely champion within the CMA is creating environments where people can share their lived experience without fear of retribution, fear of repercussions. And I think it's in hearing these stories that we start to understand just how big the scope is. When I talk to colleagues about experiences of racialization that they hear, one of the things I always tell them is, you know, this is never the first time. When you share an experience of racialization, it's because you've experienced it over and over and over again. And it's finally gotten to the point where you feel that the only thing you can do is report. Right. You've got to say and something. You, you take that on your shoulders and then you move forward with it. And, you know, you, you hope that things work out. And that that's a terrible system where you have to be pushed to the very edge before you share those experiences. And I think that's one of the reasons why the harm is so significant when we hear about these things in the news. Thunderbird Wellness is a new app developed by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. It takes a cultural approach to support health and wellness for First Nations. It's grounded in Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, connecting with our inherent strengths to support a return to wellness, to live a good life. Thunderbird Wellness has reliable information about opiates, methamphetamines, cannabis, and other substances. The Thunderbird Wellness app is free and can be downloaded today on the App Store and Google Play. We we see many Indigenous communities um, across across the country facing opioid and methamphetamine crises, um, declaring states of emergency, and 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 struggling to to find a way through that. What do you see from your uh, from your vantage point as the key to addressing that? One of the most important parts of properly addressing any of these issues is is realizing that the problem does not primarily lie with the person who's experiencing it. You know, we, we have a propensity in the culture of medicine just generally to blame patients for their problems. And that's, number one, not really our role as a provider. We're supposed to be an enabler you know, a collaborator, someone who translate knowledge. When you come into the healthcare system, you know, not just the language is confusing, but also the different steps and workflows of how you move through addressing your different problems. And I think treating patients like they're the problem lies at the root of a lot of the issues that we have with being successful in enabling people to be well again. And when you look at things like addiction and, you know, the challenges of substance abuse, there's adverse childhood experiences that have happened in people's lives. You know, there's probably things that are happening currently that are triggering the dependence on these different substances. 
And it stretches so much farther than medicine. You know, we, we talk a lot about social determinants of health, but we don't often enable people who are the gateways to care to integrate approaches that include, you know, housing, employment, um, addressing mental health, uh, things like depression, addressing, you know, adverse experiences and trauma that's happened up until that point. And if we're really going to have different outcomes when it comes to us as providers being able to enhance the ability of people to be well, you know, we, we really have to think through again the way that we're interacting with people as they come through the door and how we're integrating, you know, all, all the different parts of that person's life in that experience. You know, we, we often silo silo patients when they come in. You know, they're complete people until they walk through that clinic door, that hospital door. And then we fragment them and we think to ourselves, you know, I'm going to help you with this isolated problem, you're going to walk away and it's going to be fixed. But, you know, you walk that out, out that door, you you put on all those problems again. You know, your problem is not just that you need to be, you know, on, on some type of medication to help with your addiction. You also need help in all the other areas that I talked about. And if we can do a better job with that, I, I think we could get to the point where we could actually solve some of these problems. So really taking that trauma-informed approach so that you understand the issues that, that, that the person in front of you might be presenting besides what's obvious. Yeah, absolutely. And as I've practiced trauma-informed medicine, you know, with, with more nuance and more effectively over the past few years, you know, one, one of the things that I've realized is that trauma-informed medicine isn't as complex as we often make it out to be. You know, it's really seeing people as they are when they come through the door. It's thinking to yourself as you're going through, you know, helping people through the healthcare system that they have good reasons for doing what they're doing. You know, and, and like I said before, it's not blaming the patient for the challenges that they have. And if you can get those three parts in, you know, a medical encounter, I, I think it would be tough to have it be a bad experience. You know, and, and just like trauma is something that people bring with them that happens over, you know, a period of time in their life, unwinding that trauma is something that, that takes several different encounters with you. You know, helping that patient believe that you're going to be different than other persons that they've come in contact with. You know, having them doubt your ability to actually deliver on that promise. I mean, that that's that's just being human. You know, and I think trauma-informed care at its root is really about humanizing the person across from you. Absolutely. You know, when you've been you've been talking, I've been thinking about you know some of the some of the uh, wisdom that have been shared with us here at Thunderbird with with knowledge keepers um, talking about taking care of each other, talking about finding another way, um, moving away from the blame and shame game. Um, and stigmatizing people, which makes me, you know, think about the role that that traditional medicine might play in our healthcare system. What are your thoughts on how we can incorporate traditional ways and values into into the Western system of our healthcare? You know, I, I'm glad that you phrased it that way because my my perspectives, the 
the most impactful things that I, I practice as, as a provider have come from, you know, things that I've learned from, you know, traditional knowledge keepers, persons who practice traditional medicine, um, you know, mentors in my life who have shared their wisdom, you know, working through these same sorts of challenges. You know, I, I don't practice traditional medicine myself. Um, I have a deep respect for it. You know, it, it was interesting going through medical school because, you know, I, I came into it with this deep reverence for traditional medicine and the impact that it could have. And within medical school and residency training, there was this implicit bias against traditional medicine. Like somehow this is Western medicine and out there is everything else. And, you know, we don't practice that. We don't condone that because this is the better way. And going through that was a really surreal experience because you don't, you don't realize sometimes. And I mean, I was a kid when I went through uh, medical school. Um, you don't realize the messages that you're hearing with the clarity that you do after you've been out in practice for a while. You know, and I know that traditional medicine works. I, I know that one of the ways that we validate within indigenous communities the value of someone who practices traditional medicine is based on their track record. You know, when you come into an encounter with me, you know, you might see a degree on the wall or hear me with the, the title of doctor. Like, that's how I communicate to you my competency and value but traditional medicine is completely different you meet someone it's because you had a reference from someone else you know the people who practice traditional medicine in our communities are known by other tra traditional medicine practitioners and so there's this community validation system versus this label or this degree and understanding that took me uh, a long time to to say it out loud. I mean, I intuitively knew it, right? But when people ask me about, well, how can you trust a traditional medicine practitioner? You know, it, it took a lot of reflection and conversations with with elders and, and persons who actually practice traditional medicine to understand that that's really how things worked. You know, and I, I think one of the reasons why it took me a while to say that out loud is because it just makes sense. It was It was something that when you were going through it, you didn't have to question because it just felt right. You know, it, it aligned with, you know, the philosophy and tradition that being an indigenous person brings along with it. And when I talk with people about traditional medicine now, one of the things that I, I emphasize to them is these are not untested practices. You know, they're just valued in different ways than Western medicine values things. Western medicine says the only way that we know something works is through having a double-blinded control trial. And that's not the reality for a lot of things. You know, we don't make decisions on, you know, what food is healthy by doing a double-blinded control trial in our own lives. You know, we, we don't decide whether or not, you know, a TV show is going to be worthwhile binge watching based on a double-blinded placebo trial we sit down and we talk to each other and we ask 
and bringing that validation into the discussions, I think is really important because I, I think sometimes providers don't actually realize that that's the way that we're evaluating things. And it's an incomplete way of looking at things. At the end of the day, um, you know, considering that, you know, where we're at right now in, in terms of our evolution on Mother Earth and, and systemic racism, what brings you hope after all of, you know, all of that you shared with us today? I think it's people. You know, I started off in our conversation talking about how systems have failed us, but more and more people are coming through. And I look at, you know, champions in Indigenous health, people like Marsha Anderson, Evan Adams, Lisa Richardson, you know, Tom Dignan, who passed last year, you know, was a huge mentor to me. And I think about how hard they've worked to create, you know, a path to actually finding solutions to this problem. I look at allies and the space that that they create for these discussions. You know, I, I look at people stumble as they try and talk through these things, you know, and the the graciousness of individuals admitting their mistakes and persons who are victimized because of racism forgiving because they know that that people mean well and it's it's hard not to have hope when you realize all these different things that are going on now that hope has to translate into action and for the person who's experiencing the situation hope is not enough you know we are no longer at a point where we should accept that people are saying that things are going to change and as a result stop with the push to implement anti-racism within health and stop with the push to have people's lived experience make its way into places where we can see it in all of its you know terrifying reality but people people are why i have hope you know, we, we have so many good people in many parts of this discussion. And I, I think it's going to be people who change systems because it's always people who change systems. Thank you so much, Dr. LaFontaine. Thanks for having me. That was CMA President Dr. Elika LaFontaine. Thanks for listening to Mino Bamadzwin. I hope you enjoyed it. Please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or where you listen so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and write a review. That really helps to make sure this podcast and its message reaches as wide an audience as possible. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit our website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for at thunderbirdpf. Thanks again, Anishik. Until next time, I'm Sherry Huff.